are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Now, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, man, this morning when I got here, Carl handed me a microphone and said, I hope you know you're preaching. And I was like, yep, I know it. All right, I heard a riddle once. Let's see if you can figure this one out. Uh, Here's how the riddle goes. What are the only two things in the world that turn everything they touch into themselves. I'll give you a hint. One is fire. Everything that fire touches, it turns into itself. And the other one is, can you guess it? Okay, yes, there it is. Yeah, sorry, I got distracted by the light right there. Uh, <laughs> but I heard, I heard someone over here say love and love, and my wife was giving me one of these little, you know... Love hard things. Yeah, love is the only other thing in the world besides fire and maybe awkwardness that turns everything that it touches into itself. Now, I don't think the riddle is trying to say that when you love someone, you draw them into yourselves and consume them until there's nothing left but ash and disappointment. That's not the point. The point is that anyone who experiences love, especially the highest kind of love, cannot help but become that kind of love themselves to show that kind of love, to live in that kind of love, to live in God's love. If you were with us last weekend or you caught up on the sermon through the podcast or or the website or the Faith Church app, then you know we're taking a few weeks, just five weeks in total, to explore uh, 1 John, John's first of three letters that he he wrote that we have in our Bibles. We're tackling this short letter a little bit differently than we might normally walk through a letter like this. Instead of going through it verse by verse, we're tackling five different themes from 1 John. Uh, Themes that sort of repeat themselves throughout the letter, like musical motifs in a symphony. Last week, Pastor Jeff kicked off this thematic study by talking about what it means to share in God's life to live the kind of life God lived, this week that Jesus lived. This week, we're hitting one of John's other favorite themes, which is living in God's love. Living in God's love. And we need to tackle this theme, I think, because it's easy for us, or it's at least easy for me, to forget, you know, in the day-to-day pace of living, it's easy to forget that living in God's love isn't just about you know, grasping at an intellectual level the the fact of God's love for me. 
it's not just about experiencing a sense of feeling rested or confident in God's love for me. It's not even about being able to explain how God has loved me and how he has shown his love for me. All of that is good. All, all of that is great. Uh, it's absolutely essential to be able to rest confident in God's love for us, to sing about God's love for us and our responding love for him. But John argues here in these six verses that the natural result of God's love for us is yes, that we love him back, but more that we turn and love those around us in the same way he loved us. God's love for us isn't supposed to stop with us. It's supposed to transform us and form us so that his love for us comes through us to others. I don't know about you, but that's easy for me to forget. I'm often a lot more interested in feeling God's love for me than I am about expressing his love through me to others. But the kind of love that God calls us to live is the kind that offers life through sacrifice. That's how John is going to define love as we get into this. It offers life through sacrifice because that's what God has done for us. So if you haven't already, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7 through 12, it's just six short verses that we're going to tackle by focusing primarily on the one phrase that's repeated three times. John repeats himself. He says, let us, or we should, or we ought, to love one another. Let's jump in. Verses 7 and 8, we'll start right there at the very beginning. Beloved, let us love one another. That's the first time he uses that repeated phrase. Beloved, be loving towards one another. Let us love one another because love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. On the flip side, he says in verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, this isn't the first time that John has hit this theme of the love of God in, in this symphonic letter. In fact, this paragraph and the ones that follow are the third time this theme has been come up, that this theme has come up. It's been played once. It's been developed a second time. He's recapitulating it now a third time. And, and each time he hits this theme, he hits a little closer to home, like a dart and another dart. And finally, he hits the bullseye here in chapter 3 or in chapter 4, excuse me, in chapter 3, he had said, hey, God is light, and when we love as God loves, we walk in God's light. It's one way that we share in the light of God. And chapter 3, he, he deepened it a little more and said, when we live out the kind of love that God has for us, that serves as evidence, not just to others, but to ourselves, as reassurance to ourselves that we have received new life, eternal life. From God. Well, now in verses 7 through 12, he pushes even further into the very nature of love itself, defining it so that we know what he means when he calls us to love as God loved. So before we go any further into the passage, of course, we have to stop and take a time out and make sure that we all agree on what we mean when we use the word love that we understand what John means when he uses the word love. Because love is one of those English words that just, it is, it's carrying a lot of weight. When you're able to say, like, I love my dog, uh, I, I love football, I love chips and salsa, I love my wife, and I love God, those are not the same kind of love, right? You agree with me? 
So what does John mean when he says love? Well, if we were to read him and read him defining love or, or I'd say import our definition of love into this, we might read love the way the dictionary defines it, you know, an intense feeling of deep affection for chips and salsa uh, or for my wife. Again, not the same thing. If we read John as saying love and we assume he means an intense feeling of deep affection, well, then there's not much that he's saying here that really separates the love of God from the kind of love that is just sort of ordinary and natural to us. When John writes that God is love, I don't think that he means that God at his core is an intense feeling of deep affection. Or at least that that's not the extent and the sum total of his love. I don't think that's what John means. Further, I, I know that's not what John means. Because he's already defined love for us. If you flip back to chapter 3 and look at verse 16, it, it's real clear right there. He says, by this we know love. This is what love is. This is how we know what love is. He tells us that Jesus laid down his life for us. Okay, so if we are going to read the word love... In these verses, the way John intends us to understand what love is, we have to make sure we don't read it as an intense feeling of deep affection, but love is the same kind of sacrifice that God made in sending Jesus on our behalf. By this, we know how John defines love, that he points to Jesus laying down his life for us. So he's talking about love not as a deep feeling or, you know, intense feelings of deep affection, but as self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. Put another way, love is, for John, love is offering life through sacrifice. Love, the kind of love he's going to talk about in these verses, is the kind that offers life through sacrifice. It's got those two parts there, the giving up of the self in order to bring a benefit to another, offering life through sacrifice. So take that definition and understanding back into our passage. John says, beloved, let us love one another. And that's a command. Love one another. We ought to love one another. There's a moral obligation here for us to love one another. And the reason John can give us a command to love is because love is not a feeling. He's not commanding us to feel. He's commanding us to action to do something. The kind of love that he's talking about is not a feeling at all. It's an action. It's an act of the will. Self-sacrifice, offering life through sacrifice. So he says, beloved, beloved, let us, he commands us, we need to love one another because love is from God. This kind of love only comes from God. See, the kind of self-sacrificial love that John is talking about can only come from God. The kind of love to which we are called to have formed in us and communicated through us can only come from God. What, whatever, whatever you think of when you think of the word love, what John is talking about is not the kind of feeling or affection that we can sort of muster up in ourselves. Say, okay, I just need to feel more. I just need to feel more. It's not the kind of thing you can sort of you know, manifest or will into existence. It's a kind of love that finds its source and its origin in God and can only come from God to us because of someone else. That's what he's going to go on to explain in the subsequent verses. But before we get there, 
he, in, in verse, verses 7 and 8, he says, you know, we have to understand this. Love one another. Love is from God, and whoever loves, so whoever loves in this way has been born of God and knows God. And on the flip side, anyone who does not love in this way does not know God. If we were to, to read it with, the, with John's full definition of love in place, we would read it to be saying something like, you know, whoever joyfully sacrifices of themselves to offer life for others surely must know God, because this is the kind of love that only comes from him. They must have become a child of God. But anyone who doesn't joyfully sacrifice of themselves for the benefit of others is not someone who knows God or who has encountered the love of God for themselves. They, they don't know him. You can see what John is saying here. If we know God, this is what he's explained in chapter 2 and chapter 3, if we know God, if we truly know him, not just know about him or know facts about him, if we know God, if we've experienced his love, then we will love others in the same way that God has loved us. That's the natural consequence of coming into contact with God's love, is that his love turns our love into itself, self-giving love towards others. We know this because this is what God has done for us. He sent Jesus to us to pursue us, to come near to us, to identify with us, become one of us, to offer us life through his own sacrificial death. John says, this is love, and if you know that love, then you will become that love. To know that love is also to show that love. That's actually the point that he goes on to make in verses 9, 10, and 11. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, look at verse 9. Right? He, he goes on to say, look, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You're like, okay, well, in this, in what? He says that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He says, this is how God made his love visible to us, by sending his son into the world so that we could find life through him. Of all the ways that God has shown his love for humanity, the supreme expression of his love is in sending his only son, his, his unique, his one-of-a-kind son into the world. So that, you know, us, we human beings could find life in his love, through his love, because of his love, because of this kind of love John is talking about, the kind that offers life through sacrifice. Now, the point in verses 9, 10, and 11 is, is very similar to what John has already written in his letter. We know what love is because we have seen what Jesus did. We have seen how Jesus loved. Uh, this love, far from being an intense feeling of deep affection, is this offering of life through sacrifice. He goes on to explain that in verse 10. He says, uh, in verse 10, in this is love. And immediately he caveats himself. He says, okay, not, uh, not that we have loved God. That's not the kind of love I'm talking about. He says, but that, that God loved us and sent his son. He says that again, but sent his son. This time he goes further to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a great verse because John is, is taking pains to define love, to make sure we know what he's talking about. He says, in this is love. He says, not 
not our responsive feeling towards God. That, that, is, that is a kind of love, but it's not the kind of love he's talking about. If you want to know what kind of love he's talking about, don't look at your feelings for God. Look at God's actions towards you. That's the definition of love that he wants us to focus in on. And he says, this is how we know what love is. And this word, this, it's great. It, it, it looks both backwards and forwards into the passage. Uh, it, by this, he means that, you know, God sent his son into the world. That's how you know what love is. And that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you've never heard the word uh, propitiation before, don't beat yourself up about it. Uh, it's a word that's used only twice in the New Testament, only by John, only in this letter. And so most contemporary translations will translate it something more like atoning sacrifice, which is great because then you don't have to go to the dictionary to look up what propitiation means. But it is a little bit fuzzy of a translation because there are all these different aspects of the atoning sacrifice, and propitiation is one of them. Basically, what this word means is this is talking about a sacrifice that turns away anger or wrath. In these verses about the love of God, suddenly uh, John is bringing up God's anger, and he's saying that God is angry at our sin, and that part of Jesus's work on the cross and dying in our place and is taking that wrath, taking God's wrath at sin onto himself, removing it from us and taking it onto himself. If it seems odd to you that in a passage about living in God's love, John would refer to God's anger... Uh, it may be because, at least the way we think about it in our modern age, we tend not to think of love and anger as being compatible with one another. If you love someone, how could you ever get angry at them? Uh, but the theologians, Christian theologians throughout the centuries have, have uh, reflected and consistently made the point that, if, that, that a God without anger is, in fact, a God without love. That there is no love without an anger that comes along with it. Let me explain what we mean. Think of how you would feel if someone that you loved deeply, uh, a parent or a spouse or a friend uh, or a child, uh, someone you loved deep, deeply was absolutely destroying themselves through their own decisions and actions. We could come up with all sorts of examples. There might be the friend who's in a bad relationship because they just want to feel loved, or there's the, the parent who intrudes in their adult children's lives because they can't stand to not be needed uh, or there's the, uh, the child who is just kind of draining away their 20s because they can't finish anything they start. Now, you're looking at this person that you love deeply, and if you love them deeply, then of course you just kind of sit back and, and watch with a little benign smile and kind of go, oh, you know, whatever, they'll figure it out eventually, right? No, absolutely not. Uh, right? The more you love your friend or your child or your parent, the more, the more you hate within them the narcissism or the self-destructiveness or the apathy that you're watching tear apart their lives. If that's the way we respond, think of how a morally perfect God, the one who made your friend or your parent or your child, would feel in seeing them self-destruct. Now, that argument uh, comes from an author named Rebecca Pippert, and she follows up the argument by saying, see, we have to understand that God's wrath is not just a, a cranky explosion, like ours kind of tends to be. 
God's wrath is his settled opposition to the cancer of sin that is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. See, God is angry at whatever threatens the one that he loves in the same way that you and I are. Angry at whatever is inside of the people we love that is destroying them. So the way that anger is assuaged or or, or redirected is through a propitiation, a sacrifice that removes the anger. Now, you may be hearing this and thinking, wait, so God needs to be like appeased or uh, bought off or, or, or mollified with like gifts or something like that. And in general, that's kind of the way the pagan world looked at it. You have to make, you know, you have to keep God from getting angry at you by giving him gifts. But in scripture, and especially here in John, when he talks about a propitiation, a a sacrifice that takes God's wrath away, it's not something that we offer to God in order to be right with him. It's something that he gives to us at his own expense. When Jesus takes our sin, when God took our sin on himself, all of God's wrath at sin shifted off of us and onto him. Because he's the only one who can bear up under it and not be destroyed by it. And so John, thinking of both God's love and his anger, is saying, this is love. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about love. Not that we have loved God, that's love, but not the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, gave of himself to avert his wrath at sin off of us and onto himself, onto his own son. See, again, we see that the definition of love just keeps coming up. God's love, biblical love, the kind of love that we ought to show one another, John says, that kind of love is always an offer of life through sacrifice. Which is why John continues in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us like that, and he's not asking a question. It's kind of a rhetorical type thing. He's, he's saying, since God loved us like that, because God loved us like that, well, then we also ought to love one another. We also ought to love one another. There's that phrase again. <laughs> the first time John said, we ought to love one another because love comes from God. And if you know God and you're God's child, you'll love like God loves. And now he says, well, we ought to love one another because God showed us what love is by sending his one-of-a-kind son as a sacrifice on our behalf so we could find life in him. If God loved us like that, well, then how can we not love one another in a similar way? But of course, he's not done. He, he, he goes on. That's only twice that he's repeated himself, and a third time's coming. But one more time in this paragraph, he's going to tell us we ought to love one another. So look at verse 12. And at first glance, as we read this verse, it may hit you as a bit of a non sequitur, like he's suddenly changing topics or bringing in an argument from the side, because he said, okay, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. All right, well, let's keep following him. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then God abides or lives or resides in us, and his love is perfected or completed in us. Now, think of it this way. Uh, The the logic seems a little jarring at first, but if we trace it all the way through from verse 7, it makes a little bit more sense. 
he started out by saying, hey, we've seen what love looks like. We've seen, or actually he starts out even farther up. So we've, we've, we know God if we live this kind of love, showing life through sacrifice. It shows evidence we're a child of God. We know who God is, okay? We know God. And then he goes on to say, we've seen that love in the Son, in God sending Jesus. So if we've, if we've known God and we've seen the Son, well, then you know how no one has actually seen God Well, you may not be able to see him, he being light and spirit in all, John says, in other places. You may not be able to see him, but others can see him through you, through your love. You know God, you've seen his love in Jesus. You may not be able to see God, but we know God is in you when you love in this way. So if we love one another... There's that phrase again. If we love one another, then the presence of God within us is made known through us, and the whole goal of God's love is brought to completion in us. There's a lot to unpack right there, and I have six minutes left. Now, the initial confusing part of this state might, might be the part where uh, John says, if we love one another, then God abides in us. It sounds almost as if, you know, John is saying that once we learn how to love one another in this way, then God comes to live within us, which isn't what he's saying. He, he goes on in the verses to follow that are outside the scope of what we're studying this morning. To, he goes on to reiterate that you know, God abides in us through the Holy Spirit as a permanent status that never changes. So here... He's referring to the the degree to which we reveal that God lives in us through the love or by the love that we show to one another. The extent to which we love one another is the extent to which we reveal that God lives within us, that we know him, that we're his child. Our love for one another is, is further proof of God's presence within us. You can see how John is setting up like this cascading argument. He says, if God loved us like that, you know, offering us life through sacrifice, then we ought to love one another like that. And if we love one another like that, then God's love is perfected in us or through us. Now, that phrase also might be a little bit jarring. What do you mean God's love is perfected or or completed? Like, is God's love limited by us, like God it can only love so much until we like pick up the slack and, and sort of finish the job. It's not what John is saying. In using this word perfected or completed, other translations render it. It doesn't mean that God's love is somehow incomplete until we do our part. It means that God's love has, has always been about not, not just working in us, but through us into others. Think about the whole goal of God sending his son as an atoning sacrifice. Why did God send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and for mine? Why rise again to offer us new life in him? Is it just so that at the end of the day I can say my sins are forgiven? Obviously that's like the core and central central part of it. Yes. 
But again, that's just the central part of it. The, the goal has been not just for us to enjoy God's love or, or rest in God's love or to know with confidence that we're loved by God and adopted into his family. It's not just so that we can leave church knowing that we're children of God and that we know him, he knows us, we live in him, he lives in us. John says it's not supposed to stop there with God loving us, us being confident in it, and then us loving God back. The whole goal of bringing us to him through the sacrifice of his son was so that the way we live in love would be utterly transformed. God loves through, he loves us so that he can love through us. God's love is complete. The goal of God's love in sending the son on our behalf is complete when he has formed that same kind of love in us for those around us. So John is, is saying that God's love isn't complete when we experience intense feelings of deep affection for God. Uh, or when we experience a sense of his affection for us. It's not even complete when we have a mystical experience of the love of God and an overwhelming sense of being loved and, and held and, and forgiven and welcomed. That's the start God's love for us comes to completion when he has formed in us the same kind of love which he has for us. He wants that love through us towards others. John has argued in, in these verses that God's love, I mean, love, this kind of love originates in God himself. That's what verses 7 and 8 taught. And it's been made visible to us. We know what it looks like because of his son. That's what verses 9 and 10 and 11 have taught, but this love is only completed. It only reaches the end for which this love uh, sent Jesus when it has been made complete in us, through us, towards others. And so he says, love one another. This is why Jesus died for you, to make you right with him so that you can love one another. He says it a third time. I'll say it a third time. Love one another. This is the, the, the essence of the Christian life, is to offer one another life through sacrifice. Now, I know I've, I've, well, because John does, I've been defining love as the offer of life through sacrifice. And that's a little bit of a risky way to define it because when we use a word like sacrifice, we start to think about the big grand gesture, right? The throwing yourself on a grenade, uh, the, the, the opportunity to give your, to physically, literally give your life for someone else. And so, you know, to, to expend that last full measure of devotion, to someone else. But if we wait until we're called on to sacrifice our life for someone else, you know, as our big opportunity to show love, then we've probably misunderstood what John is getting at. The kind of love he is talking about, yeah, it can come through in the grand gesture, but it comes through even more profoundly in the mundane, in the small and habitual practices of love. All those habits that have been formed up within us around how we own things or think about others or how we eat and how we socialize and how we talk and how we work and 
how we rest and how we wear our name tags and all the little things that we do to love one another. Right? Do we, put it hypothetically, do we resist, for instance, consumerism? Do we resist the consumerism around us and push back against that ceaseless urge that's being pushed on us? Well, it comes from within us too, but that ceaseless urge to just own more things. Do we, do we push back on that because we want to be free from stuff and not to feel encumbered? Or so that we're more free to use our resources to love those around us? Do we love others by sacrificing what we have that they might need? In other words. Or another just little habitual way that we love uh, the people around us is when we discipline our thoughts about the people around us, reminding our minds that our neighbors and our brothers and sisters are not simply selfish sinners in need of a little justice. but they're broken and hurting people looking for the same kind of love that we're longing for. So do we love others by sacrificing what we think they deserve for what will bring them life? Or do we curb our appetites for food so that we're free to give more to others? Or on the flip side, do we include others in our celebrations, rejoicing in God's goodness to us through generosity to others? Do we love others by sacrificing our appetites so that we have more to share with those who otherwise would have none? Or in the day-to-day, do we intentionally take time to, to kind of step away from our interactions with others so we can think about how we're treating the people closest to us? Uh, those people in our homes and in our, our neighborhoods, actively sacrificing time to deliberately reflect on how we are loving other people. Or, this one's the hardest one for me, do we stop running our mouths all the time so that others have a chance to talk? So that others, the people that we're you know, in life with, have a chance to express themselves and to reveal themselves? Or do we keep talking and talking and talking because I have lots of thoughts that everyone needs to hear. Do we sacrifice our opinions so that there's room in the conversation for someone else? Do we approach our work, the things we do for a living or the ways that we, you know, the, the other, just the places we apply our energy, do we approach our work, however, however mundane or exciting it might be, do we approach it as an opportunity to serve others? Is serve others with our minds, with our hands, or is this just where you get your paycheck so you can do what you want with the money you've earned? Minus the 10% that Terry wants. Do we love others by sacrificing our energy so they can find relief from their own labor? And do we rest? Do we rest when we feel like we need it? It's like, man, it's time for another mental health day. I'm just so drained. I got to recharge. I got to take some time off. Or do we rest, intentionally rest from our labor so that others can find rest from the demands that we put on them? I'm super productive between five and seven in the morning, and yet every email I send then between five and seven is telling everyone who works for me that they better be up and moving as well right? So if I can't rest, 
then others can't rest. And if I can't rest, I'm not loving others and sacrificing my desire for progress or productivity so that others can find life-giving rest. It's not about some big grand gesture or being willing to jump on a grenade for somebody that you have intense feelings of deep affection for. True practices of love, the kind of love that John is talking about, is not just directed at those who agree with us or those who already think the same way that we do or look the same way that we do or whom we would naturally have affection for. He's saying this is this kind of love that God had for us that we have for others is this, I don't know, it's profligate. It's just, it's just overwhelmingly excessive. There's a book on the uh, spiritual disciplines that I really enjoy, really like, found very helpful, called Practices of Love. And one of the reasons I really like that book is that the, the guy who wrote it talks about the spiritual disciplines. He says, let's turn them on their side. We tend to think of spiritual disciplines as the way that we feel strong, you know, strong experience of God's love. And that's part of it, but really it's about how we love our neighbors and those around us. He's meditating in the book on John 4. And saying, you know, the, this is what he writes, the ultimate goal of the Christian life isn't a bunch of cheap thrills of the sacred. Or even living a meaningful or fulfilled life. It's not even about being a good person and correcting our behavior so that we can live in a good conscience towards God in the confines of our intimate personal relationship with him. He says, that's not the way of Jesus. The, the way of Jesus is that he leads us ultimately to himself, that is, ultimately to love. The way of Jesus is a life of love. Jesus himself said it, right? When people will know that you follow me because of your political platform. Sorry, I mean, they will... They will know that you follow me because of your moral excellence. This is they'll know that you follow me because of your love. There is no getting around it. The essence of the Christian life is love. Daily, minute, mundane Every day, I don't know how many other words there are to say, just normal <laughs> love. Far from being a grand gesture or a supreme sacrifice, living in God's love means everyday little love. But John says that when we live that love, offering others life through our own sacrifice, people see God through us. And they experience God's love through us. That's the goal. So let's pray. Father, we confess that often almost exclusively when we contemplate your love for us, we rightly and appropriately respond and 
we respond in love for you because your love for us calls out of us love for you, and this is good and this is right, but we confess that we do not often then from that contemplation turn and consider how your love for us is communicated through us to others. We know the commands. We know the one another's. We know we're supposed to love others uh, like you loved us, and yet, Father, we, we... we fail at loving others in the everyday and the little ways because, or at least I fail in loving you in the everyday little ways because I'm focused on just the big grand gesture. So I pray even as in these next few moments, as we again rest in the confidence of your love for us, and we contemplate the depth of your love for us, that we would not stop with how your love for us makes us feel. But we would see in your giving of your son the model for our own lives. So we cry out to you, through your spirit, Empower us to live this love and offer life to those around us through the sacrifice of ourselves. We pray this in the name of the one who shows us what love is, offering us that life through his own sacrifice.